0: series which is about the self-revelation of God in Scripture and tonight we're going to be um, backtracking a little bit because last time I rather ran out of time Mm -hmm. and I tried to pack into about three minutes um, what should have taken a lot longer. And what I was talking about is actually very important to the rest of uh, Scripture. So I really want to sort of backtrack a bit and we'll start again on that and um, talk about very much about the common curse and common grace. And we're going to have a short reading from Genesis 3 and <clears throat> verse 15. Verse 15 we'll all we'll have our minds by the end of this series, I think. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, "Thou shalt not eat of it," cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also, and thistles shall bring forth to thee. For thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread. Till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Unto Adam also, unto his wife, did the Lord God make coats of skins, and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us, to know good and evil, and now lest he put forth his hand, and take also of the tree of life and eat, and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden, to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden carabins, and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep. The way of the truth of life. This subject of common curse and common grace will be particularly important to try and understand before we move on into chapters 4 to 6. Chapters 4 to 6 are that period where God reveals very significant truths before you reach the time of Noah. Uh, and we probably won't touch on that today, but what I'm going to say this evening is vital to understand in order that we can, understand, that we can comprehend what God is saying in chapters 4 to 6. Last time we considered the judgment of God upon Satan following the fall of man, and we began to consider the judgment upon man and what we just read, verses 16 to 24, was the sentence upon man, the immediate sentence God placed on disobedient man. And the important thing to remember from last time was that this curse from God is given to Adam and Eve, not just in terms of them being individuals, but this punishment from God on Adam and Eve was to was to flow was to carry on through to their descendants, to the rest of all creation in some way. Which is why Paul says in Romans five verse twelve. Um, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all, for all have sinned. Again, chapter five, nineteen of Romans, it says, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. So this is why when we think of Adam and Eve, they represent the human race, Adam in particular, in particular, what's called the Federal Head. I guess from America you do understand the word Federal more than an English person, because of the Federal Government um, that you have. So rep- he stands in the place of, of, of everyone else, and the punishment that was laid on Adam wasn't just for him, it was for all future humanity. And so the consequence of of Adam and Eve's disobedience uh, has ramifications for the whole of human history. And all humans, right down to today, experience this punishment that was placed upon them. This human suffering, most notably, um, and it's not exclusive, but most notably suffering in childbirth, in marriage and in work. Those are the three areas that are mentioned and then also the vital importance in this punishment is a form of death that would be a return to the dust. It says in verse 19 towards the end, for dust thou art and unto dust shalt thou return. And then right at the end of the chapter of the last part of the punishment was being driven out of the land of Eden. I'm not going to speak about that because I spoke about that not long ago on Sunday morning. I think we probably don't need to return to that aspect. So a common curse because of sin that all people experience right down to today. Mm. Uh, and as I said last time um, that is true of the church, people who are elect, and those who are unbelievers. This is what's well, what's called a common curse. Mm-hmm. So, unless you know any different, um, Christian women experience just as much pain in childbirth. I, wouldn't know about that so much, but, um, I don't think Christian women are given an easier right. Um, Christian women suffer, <coughs> suffer barrenness, they have disabled children, they lose children, just the same as non-Christians. We have to balance that, of course, by saying that if you're a Christian, then God's providence and his personal plan view you comes into play, which doesn't necessarily follow with non-Christians, but nonetheless, we are subject to all the common curses. So verse 16, as I say, mentions childbirth and then it mentions marriage and thy desire shall be to thy husband and he shall rule over thee. The translation of that word desire, the meaning of that word desire is very difficult. And, you know, I don't think anyone's a homosexual sure, but it has been interpreted and I think it's probably true. So there must be a curse of some kind that what this means is that marriage will be characterized by a level of conflict. Wives will want to overthrow the headship of man as their husbands and men will want to tyrannize and oppress their wives. Certainly, if we look at history around, not just our day, um, that seems to be what has happened. Um, and then there's the punishment of man in terms of work. This toil unto death. Not work itself, because Adam and Eve, before they sinned, had work. Well, Adam, certainly did. He was a gardener. He was um, there to tend the Garden of Eden. So work itself is not a, not a punishment. But the work with this level of toil and frustration is part of the common curse. Painful labor, labor. And we think, we mustn't just think about our day because some of the effects of of this curse have been softened by science and various other advances, but think of the whole of history. For most of history, man has had a dreadful time getting, making a living out of the ground. It's been hard and men have died young because of the painful labour that they've uh, they've had to endure. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return to the ground. That's the curse. You live live off the dust and you'll return to the dust. That's true for Christians. Christians die. non-Christian style. And in many lands today, people are still eking out a subsistence living from the soil. And all marriages, including Christian marriages, experience some level of conflict. It's part of the common curse. I never believe sometimes you see people say, I've never had a crossword in seventy years of marriage. So I find very difficult to believe. It. And so there is this common curse. And yet we notice something very odd. If we read this very carefully, we, we find something very strange. I mean, it's not strange so it's because we know the rest of the story. But if this is all we have, there's something here which is inconsistent at first reading. Because although these curses sound painful and frightening, they do not match, do they, they the covenant curse that we read in chapter 2 and verse 17. Just to remind you what that says, it says, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now if you match that with the common curse, the curses that we have read, it doesn't fit, does it? Although the parishes are bad, are difficult, it is not. It's not this sudden death. It's not this comprehensive death. Because Adam and Eve deserved this immediate, ultimate condemnation and eternal death in hell. That's the kind of death that God is speaking of. In in two seventeen, in the. in two, chapter two, verse seventeen. The death spoken of as returning to the dust of the ground is death according to this creation, but it's not eternal punishment and torment and hell. from Genesis two seventeen, we would have expected Adam and Eve's hearts to stop beating, their lungs to cease breathing. And that would have been perfectly just, what they deserved and and what God promised. He said, the day you eat of the tree of life you will surely die, eternal death. And yet, human life did not come to a sudden end, did it? That could have been the end of the story. It's what we would have expected just from what we read up to that point. But instead, God places these common curses on man. And the way that they're phrased by God clearly implies that human life will go on. Um, you have to be alive. And you have to be alive if you, to have a wife to experience pain in childbirth. And um, so children will continue to be born. You have to be alive to have a marriage when you fall out. Um, you have to be alive to struggle against the ground to provide food for your family. I mean, that's obvious what I'm saying. But the, what I'm trying to say is that in the way that curses are phrased, God is clearly saying that life is going to go on. The continuance of man was also implied in the promise of the seed of a woman bruising a serpent's head. Uh, And it's made more explicit, as I say, in these common curses. And so what do we conclude? Well, we know from the rest of Scripture that what God reveals in this early part of the Bible is that man has been granted Stay of execution. It's not that God has withdrawn Genesis 2 17. He's delayed the execution of it. It's like God, um, well, it is like a judge giving a, a verdict. Yes, you're guilty. But in most trials, I guess it's the same in America. there's a verdict, guilty or not guilty and then if it's guilty you often have come back perhaps some days later for the sentence Um, but the sentence will come the sentence may be delayed and in a much bigger way God has given the verdict you shall surely die but he has not implemented the sentence. He has delayed or postponed final judgment. And this delaying of final justice is spoken of in the New Testament. It's very explicit. The New Testament makes it clear that the judgment of chapter 2 verse 17 of Genesis will come to pass and Not to put too fine a point on it, the language is absolutely terrifying. So, we won't read many of it, but just take for example two Thessalonians one verses seven to nine. This is what it says: When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Now, it would have been perfectly right and just for that to have happened straight away when Adam and Eve fell. But there is this delayed justice Paul speaks of it again in Romans chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. This is perhaps a little clearer. It says, Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness, and forbearance, and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance, but after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasurest up unto thyself wrath. Against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, and then finally Romans nine twenty two, what if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, end, endure with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? And that's really how we are to understand this delay. It's God's long suffering, it's God's forbearance, but it's not He's not negated, He's not withdrawn, His verdict. Why is man allowed to live on? Why are humans allowed to make a life for themselves? Despite all the difficulties, it's possible to make a life, isn't it? I'm talking now not in Christian terms as such. Well the reason for it is because of God's redemptive program which we read and we studied already in Genesis 3.15 This separation of one seed of Christ was God's sovereign election of a remnant people. That's really what the whole Bible is about. God's elect remnant. That's called the seed of the woman. And God made a covenant promise. The covenant of grace, which we'll study a bit more. The covenant of grace, which is that all for whom the Son of God suffered, all for whom he suffered that bruising of the heel, will be saved. And the implementation of this gospel promise would not have been possible if the final judgment... Had been imposed upon Adam and Eve straight away. There would have been no time for the seed to have developed. No time for the plan of God to have come to fruition. Rather, God is allowing history to continue and the plan of redemption to unfold. And we see we see this. Um, Amazing forbearance, amazing gospel love, um, straight away in our our chapter. Um, Just in the the example of Adam and Eve themselves, because they fell, when they fell, they were under the judgment and the wrath of God. They were as damned as any sinner. And yet they had heard the gospel in the judicial sentence against, against Satan, Satan's head would be bruised. Mm-hmm. They'd heard the gospel and they believed they responded to that gospel. And that's clear from Genesis 3 verse 20. I'll read it. It says, Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. This is proof, dear friends, that Adam and Eve believed the gospel. Because the promise was that I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And Adam Causes wife Eve, which means life. So Adam had faith to believe that human life would go on, that God's promise in verse 15 would be true, that his wife would bear seed, mm. and that from that seed there would be a Messiah mm. who would crush the head of the serpent. And so they put their faith in that promise, that gospel promise, and Adam called his wife life. Eve means life. It's an act of faith. We're saved by faith in the promise of God. That's what Adam did, and he did. Believed that there would be salvation through the woman's seed. He named his, his, his wife the woman, Eve, life. But saving faith, the first example of it. And they who were lost are now saved. And verse 21 narrates how the Lord responded to Adam's confession of faith. It says that to Adam also unto his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins, and clothed them God provided Adam and Eve with a covering it was a symbolic sign that God's purpose would come true and that he would do what was necessary to cover man's shameful defilement and reconcile man to God God clothed them with the skins of animals. And there's significance in, in the quality of this covering because when man, Adam and Eve, fell, what did they do? They, they made this feeble attempt to, to deal with their own guilt and shame by sewing fig leaves together. But God clothed, that clothed them properly in a covering which he provided mm. the covering of animal skins true salvation has to come not from us it comes from the lord he provides salvation salvation is of god mm. and it was right from the beginning god provides the covering. Another feature of this covering, of course, which man provided, which God, rather, provided for man's nakedness, that it was procured through a sacrifice of life. Mm. They weren't skins of plants or trees. They were animal skins. And this echoes, of course, the prophecy of of chapter 315, that the sufferings, which the, the Messianic seed would endure, would involve blood, would involve death, would involve sacrifice in order to reconcile man to God. I guess if we look at the full light of Scripture, we're probably putting too much weight on it to say it too early, but with the full light of Scripture we can regard this as as a sign that robe of righteousness Mm. which the Saviour obtained through death to cover what? To cover cover the guilt, the nakedness and the shame of you and I. Mm. The Lord provides the covering, And so, Adam and Eve had to leave the garden and go out into that howling wilderness under a common curse but at least at least they were the Lord's people at least they were saved Mm -hmm. at least they went out wearing those symbolic clothes those animal skins which God provided that sign of restoration attained through the death of an animal substitute, all of that would have given them hope every time they dressed in the morning, they were wearing a covering that God provided. And so this idea of sacrifice and an animal substitute as a sign of salvation comes very early in the Bible and it develops of course at a pace as we go through. So this is why this judgement was delayed. And this is the position that man found himself under at this stage of Scripture. If the gospel promise was to be fulfilled, final judgment must be postponed. So, dear friends, despite God's displeasure in this world, the sun still shines every day, in the country, Man is not cast into outer darkness yet. God has a plan for his elect, for his church. And and that's how we should understand this this postponement of final judgment. But final judgment there will be. And that's why we need to warn people of it. Mm. 2 Peter 3 verse 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men can slackness, but is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. What does that mean? Well, it means that the, the, it's exactly what I'm saying, that this final judgment is delayed because the Lord doesn't want any member of his church chosen before the foundation of
1: time to be lost. He wants everyone to come
0: into salvation so that they don't perish and that all should come to repentance. And 1 Timothy 2, verse 3 and 4 similarly says, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Saviour, who will have all men to be saved. He will have all, does that mean every single person who has ever lived? No. He wants all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Or who's he talking about? He's talking about the seed of the woman. Those who who will, <clears throat> he from before the foundation of time has chosen in love to be his own. So that, I just want to, to lay that out as an explanation of why we don't see the end of the world straight away because that would—that was what, by any reading, you would have expected. God warned man, but God, in His graciousness, has a gospel. He has a plan, and that's the reason for the delay. So now, the next vital point to understand. <coughs> is that the limited nature of this common curse, which is in sharp contrast to the ultimate, final curse, it implies another principle that is operating under God's plan and purpose. And this is known as the principle of common grace. It's known as the covenant of Common grace, but we're a bit early for that yet. That comes with no. But the principle is here, right now, in Scripture. It's not yet a covenant, but it's a principle. Common grace and common curse are two sides of the same coin. Because of the way God chose to deal with man, there's a wonderful um, blessing in that, comparatively speaking, life in this world is ordered. It's not anarchy. The ground brings forth thorns and thistles, but it also brings forth fruit and vegetables in abundance. Mm. Some countries in Egypt, for example, is an amazingly fruitful place. Man still retains some knowledge of God and has some virtue. This is something that is often misunderstood when we say that man is um, totally depraved. It doesn't mean that man is as bad as he can possibly be. Mm. It means that every aspect of his, of his being, his mind, his body, his, his soul, are all touched with sin. Mm. He's totally depraved. Mm. But some people are far worse than others. Some people are more depraved than others, some people are absolutely wicked, like Hitler. Some people are respectable people, but they're both totally depraved, in the sense that all aspects of their personality and being are touched by sin, but not to the same extent. That's um, one of the ways we can explain why we meet nice people and meet horrible people. It's not necessary to, some preachers seem to do, to say that, that everybody is almost gives the impression that they're as simple as they could possibly be. So man still retains some knowledge of God's virtue. Man has many gifts and talents and can use them in science and technology to mitigate the effects of this common curse. And of course, we living in the modern age, much of this common curse has been mitigated. Not all of it, of course. We still die. And it's clear from Scripture that alongside God's <clears throat> plan of saving grace, there is this principle of common grace. Now, it's really important to try and understand this. I'm trying to explain it clearly. Common grace and saving grace, although they both say grace, they're very different. Mm -hmm. They're not the same. They mustn't be confused.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Like I said, God's plan of redemption could not proceed without common grace. So the blessings of common grace are given to everyone, no matter whether they're good or bad, black or white, rich or poor. The blessings of common grace are given to everyone, believer and Mm non-believer. It is common, not as in, it's not worth anything, it's common as it's universal. Mm -hmm. Saving grace is different, saving grace is limited. And it's particular to certain people. Saving grace is not a universal thing. Some people teach that. But it's a false teaching that everyone will be saved. That isn't what the Bible teaches. Saving grace removes the penalty and over time the pollution of sin. Common grace does not save But by God's grace and the provisions of things like justice and family and the state, God has put in a, a restraining effect on the impact of sin upon this world. If He hadn't done so, this world would be unlivable. I don't want to. I don't want to move on to do the chapters, but we we get an example straight away of this with Cain where God puts a mark on him. He says, anyone who kills Cain, he will be killed. Justice is implemented straight away, a system of, of, of justice. A restraining effect upon sin. That's common grace. And that's how we need to understand common grace, and how, and how we should understand When Paul, for example, in Romans 13, verse 1 speaks like this, this is how we understand it. It says, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. So the state... Things like the court, judges, justice, police, and what have you, are God-ordained ways of keeping sin in some kind of check Mm -hmm. so that Christians can live a life to the degree that the gospel can be preached. Mm -hmm. It's the only reason for this delay. Mm -hmm. It's not for the non-believer, it's for the believer, it's for the gospel. And so through common grace we have rulers, we have law governments and it bestows universal blessings in terms of health and wealth, love, culture, technology science, medicine, leisure, education and so on. That's why in Acts chapter 14 Paul speaking at Lystra says "Ye should turn from these vanities he's talking to heathen people you should turn from these vanities unto the living God which made heaven and earth and the sea and all the things that are therein who in time past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. Listen to this. Nevertheless, he left not himself without witness in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons filling our hearts with food and gladness. That is the way we should understand the blessings that fall upon believer and unbeliever. To people that don't deserve it, well we don't deserve it either. But why does somebody like Putin get to live another day and have three, four, five square meals a day? It's because of common grace. Mm. Another aspect of the meaning of common grace is not is, is that it's not just universal. It is what I call non-sacred, and I, and I need to explain myself. It is common, not holy. Now that doesn't mean it's unholy. It's just not holy. The only things that are holy are those things which will persist and endure and will enter into the new heavens and the new earth. And what is that? It's the church. Nothing else. The church is the only thing in the world that is holy. But in common grace there are these other things which are non-holy. They're not unholy necessarily. They're just non-sacred. And so, but another way, a better way of putting it, is that there is the common, and then there is the holy. And it's a failure of the church to understand the difference, which has caused so much difficulty. So many things in life are secular, they're non-holy, but they're not, in and of themselves, bad. But neither are they holy. And that is a change since the fall because in Eden everything was holy. Um, everything was destined for the new heaven and the new earth. But since the fall, the church is the holy in a common world. And only that which will be part of the new creation is holy. Everything else is temporary, common, and secular. Things like culture. Not all culture is sinful. Some par- parts of culture are good. Sport, sport is not sinful. Technology, science can all be great blessings. But none of those things, no human technology, even if we get to, to Mars, which we may want well it. none of that, no human achievement, Will enter into the new creation, the new heaven, the new earth, none of it will count for anything. Mm -hmm. Because all the blessings, all the progress man makes in this life is only in terms of this temporary abeyance of the final judgment in order that the gospel is preached. Now, it's vital to understand this because as much confusion and waste of time comes from the church not understanding this. Um, and as we progress into the into the, the next chapters, we'll read of, of many common grace blessings. We'll read of wine which makes glad the heart of man, we'll read of primitive settlements of early man. where we'll hear the sound of the forge and the sound of music. The canine communities will build the first city, and by implication, the first state with its restraining powers. Will come alongside that. We're going to read, and we'll do this next time. We'll read alongside all those common grace blessings. We'll come across many social evils, natural evils too, destructive earthquakes and devastating wars. God's hand of common grace, tempers, like God's hand tempers mm-hmm. the common curse until the final, full redemption comes. And that's the setup, if you like, for the following chapters. But I emphasize, the creation will not continue like this forever. We're in between. This is the age of the gospel. Now is the day of salvation. And the day of salvation closes. Creation comes to an end. All history is heading towards the second coming and the final judgment. God's covenant of grace is open through all that time alongside common grace. But common grace will end. And at the consummation of the final judgment only those who know God through saving grace will be saved and on the last day all human culture even the state itself even the family because Jesus said there's no marriage in heaven all comes to an end unbelievers will go to hell And that will be the end of time. Christians will enter into what I can only say will be saying, a paradise of which we have little conception. Just very quickly, by way of making this practical for us, many Christians want to, to confuse that which is holy with that which is common. They want to, they see the Culture, the state, the family. They want the state and the culture and the family to become holy now. They want to build almost like a theocracy. They want to build a kind of Israel now. They want to build a new Jerusalem on earth. We hear people from the Church of England, the Archbishop, pontificating on. whether we should be sending refugees to Rwanda and things like this, getting involved in politics. We have um, even reformed people wanting to introduce and to apply the law of Moses to the human state. Doug Wilson in in, um, Moscow, I think it's Idaho, He's trying to build a Christian city. He's a, a, a reformed man, a great preacher. But he's trying through the law of Moses to Christianize his whole area. Many Christians, actually, many and, and quite a few reformed Christians, are saying that we can apply the Bible to that which is common,
1: to make that which is common and holy you get such phrases as trying to redeem
0: the culture, makes things like um, saying that we must create Christian music, Christian rock. Mm. We must have Christian art, Christian literature. There's no such thing as Christian art or Christian literature or Christian music. All those things are good, depending on what it is. Of course, it is bad, Christian music. But in
1: theory, all those things are
0: good. We don't need to make it Christian. It's already common, as in it's, it's not holy, but neither is it unholy. Many of these things are given to us as common grace blessings. And yet many Christians are trying to make all of that holy, Christianize everything. There is no Christian music outside of the Holy Church of Christ. There is no Christian state. This is one, unfortunately, we have to be fair. We love the Puritans, but one of the big mistakes of many of the Puritans was that they got this very confused. They tried to build Jerusalem on England's green and pleasant land. And Oliver Cromwell tried to make England at least, into an Israel. Um, the, the early Puritans in, in New England, their experiments didn't last more than five minutes did it? trying to build a Christian state. It doesn't work because we're trying to confuse that which is holy with that which is common. It isn't the job of the Christian Church, as the Church, her officers in, in particular, to do anything else but to preach the gospel and administer the sacraments. That is the job of the Church, not to get involved in politics, not to engage in a social gospel, mm. not to try and Christianize that which is common. We can't go into this because we've run out of time, but, as I say, there are many disagreements about this. Let me just read the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 31, verse 4, which, again, if the Puritans had kept to their own confession, they wouldn't have got into the mess they did in this regard. The Westminster Confession is very clear about the role of the church and the state. It says synods and councils—that's more the Presbyterian thing—ignore that. Let's just say the church is to handle or, or conclude nothing but that which is ecclesiastical, and are not to intermeddle with civil affairs which concern the commonwealth, unless by way of humble petition. In cases extraordinary, or by way of advice for satisfaction of conscience, if they be thereunto required by the civil magistrate. He's talking there about things like times of persecution, where the church made a humble petition to the state to ask them to stop the killing us. Mm-hmm. But apart from that, the church it says in the Westminster Confession, which is supposed to be. The father of confession for four people. We are not to the church is not to intermeddle with civil affairs. what do we see on? all the time? The church doing nothing at us. But intermeddle with politics and what does it not do? Preach the gospel. The very reason why judgment is being delayed. John Calvin is always useful in these things. Sometimes we can't take any math to be right on everything, but I would like to argue with him. He says this, and I'll close with this, but if you don't believe John Cappen, you know, I've got no chance. He says, For there are some who, deny that a commonwealth is duly formed, which neglects the political system of Moses and is ruled by the cold laws of nations, let other men consider how perilous and seditious this notion is. It will be enough for me to have proved it false and foolish. In other words, some are saying that a commonwealth, a, a country, its political system must be the system of Moses, the system of Israel. And John Calvin says that it's perilous and seditious, a seditious notion. Why? Because it's confusing the holy with the common. and So we must insist on the spirituality of the church and not confuse our mission. And so there's many other things I need to say, wanted to say, say perhaps say next time. But just in one minute. Why is common grace useful for us to understand? something which many Christians are unfamiliar with many Christians may have even heard of it. But it's so important to understand life and the Bible. Common grace helps us to explain the relative goodness and virtue in unbelievers. People raise respectable families, they act honestly, they build ethical businesses, they show love. And the reason for that is that God restrains sin. Mm-hmm. Secondly, it helps us to see that God provides for all His creatures, believers and unbelievers. And mostly, God provides our needs as Christians through the skill and labour of those who reject the gospel. The food you eat, the clothes you wear are made by all by reformed or Christians of any kind. Some of them will be, but it will be a tiny minority. And so common grace is really common, for believer and unbeliever. And it helps us to distinguish between common and saving grace. It's not a sign of God's favour or salvation if a person enjoys wealth or health You can be very poor and spiritually rich. Mm. James said that in his epistle. Mm. You can experience much physical suffering in life, but it's no reflection on you as an individual so under the common custom of the providence of God. We mm. must never assume if someone is ill, it's because of sin. Mm. The blessings of health and wealth are common grace blessings but they're not signs of the new birth. And this is the great heresy today that um, if you believe the gospel and if you tithe and if you give to the famous pastor and his ministry, that you will become rich, that God will bless you, that your tithing will open the storehouses of heaven and financial blessing will come upon you. No, that's a lie. Mm-hmm. Most Christians from the time have been direct is the gospel is for the poor, for the downtrodden, and for those who have no confidence in the flesh. So dear friends, I hope that will help you to understand common grace and common